In the U.S., we've actually created a system that creates obese animals very quickly. We put them in situations that are highly stressful. They're fed a maladaptive and inflammatory diet, and they're heavily dosed with antibiotics. What we didn't bargain for or look at is the bigger trade-offs that we would have to make for that cheap product. The role of ruminants in maintaining ecosystem is documented time and time again. We have actually, through raising beef at scale, increased the carbon in our soil. You have to be an advocate for your health as you navigate an American grocery store. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I learned so much in today's episode. I feel like for so many of us, at least me personally, there's really a lack of clarity surrounding what actually happens and goes down with farming, raising animals, the meat supply at the grocery stores, just what is actually happening there, as well as how all of that affects the environment. And so who better to talk to about bringing some clarity to all of that than with a woman who is really truly making groundbreaking change in the world of regenerative agriculture. And it's kind of funny, I didn't plan this, but I just watched The Lion King and who knew in The Lion King, they seem to really get the whole circle of life, the role of animals in the environment. I think literally Mufasa says something to Simba about carbon in the soil. Not not scientifically to that point, but... <laughs> He says something about the role of life and death and how it affects the environment and the circle of life. And then you see what happens when the circle of life gets out of whack. In any case, the show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash belcampo. That's B-E-L-C-A-M-P-O. They will also have a full transcript. If after listening to this episode, you'd like to get some of your own Belcampo meat, Ship straight to your door. Anya was so kind to give our listeners a very special discount. You can go to bellcampo.com and use the coupon code AVALON20. That's A-V-A-L-O-N-2-0. That will get you 20% off your order. The meat is so delicious, so high quality, so nutritious. You will not regret it. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. All you do is comment something you learned or something that resonated with you after listening on the pinned post in my Facebook group. That group is IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting, plus Real Foods, plus Life. We talk about everything. It's the place to be. I also have a super amazing resource for listeners. So I've been getting a lot of questions about supplementing with grass-fed organs for health because a lot of people don't want to actually eat the organs. (laughs) They'd rather just have their steak. I mean, some people like liver and things like that, but there are a lot of potential health benefits and people actually radically changing their health, supplementing with things like grass-fed thymus, grass-fed spleen, grass-fed kidney. It's almost overwhelming. I personally started supplementing with ancestral supplements. I wanted to try them out because I was honestly blown away by their Amazon reviews. Like it was kind of shocking. The things people were reporting, it makes it super easy to get in really high nutrients. comes from grass-fed cows in New Zealand. It's freeze-dried, free of toxins, and 
really, truly incredible. The company's incredible. So I reached out to them and was like, can I get a discount for my audience? And they said, yes. So if you go to ancestralsupplements.com, you can actually use the code Melanie Avalon to save 10%. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'm also really trying to convince them to come on the show to do an episode on specifically supplementing with the different organs. I'm trying to convince them. I haven't yet. So if anybody has any good ideas for helping me convince them, bring them on, please let me know. Maybe if everybody buys the supplements and uses the code, they'll be like, oh, okay. There's some people interested here. Also friends, get excited. I'm about to tell you how you can get something completely for free, completely free. I don't know how I can say that anymore, but it's free. If you are at all having trouble digesting your meat or not even your meat, just your food, if you have any digestion problems, because people can still have digestive distress, even when they're eating healthy, nutritious foods. Welcome back to the show. So I am very excited about the episode that we are about to have. It's about a topic near and dear and true to my heart personally, but I think it also really ties into a lot of things that everybody is experiencing a lot of the stress involving our food system right now and the future of that and what that looks like on a sustainable basis. So I think that the content that we're going to discuss in here, I would have wanted to have had this episode anyway before COVID and the whole quarantine situation, but I think now it's even more present to a lot of people. So very, very excited. Let me introduce the fantastic guest that I have on. I'm here with Anya Fernald. She is the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo. And I am so jealous because for listeners, you might know I lived in California for about 10 years and now I'm in Atlanta, but Belcampo actually operates a 27,000 acre farm, organic with regenerative agriculture. We're going to go into the science and the details of what that all means. They're doing incredible things. Anya herself, a lot of awards to her name. She's actually been one of Inc. Magazine's 100 female founders. She's one of the 40 under 40 by Food and Wine. She's been named a Nifty 50. I really like that by the New York Times. She's been profiled in the New York Times and the New Yorker. And you might have actually seen her on the television because she has served as a regular judge on Iron Chef America on the Food Network since 2009. Anya, I am so excited about this conversation that we're about to have. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I thought to start things off before we get into the actual topic, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal story and what led you to where you are today with this passion for you know, organic farming, regenerative agriculture, your restaurants, all of that. So what's your story? Melanie, we're a little bit alike in that it comes from a space of health and interest in health. You know, I, I got interested, I've always been interested in food and cooking. And I loved, you play that role in childhood, right? That kind of imprints and shapes how, how we think about life. And one of those roles that I played in my childhood home was my mom was really intimidated by cooking. And so I learned to cook at a really young age, really to help her because she got very overwhelmed when cooking. So I had that kind of base level of like knowing how to cook and being really comfortable in the kitchen. And then health comes into it. I was athletic in college and, and high school. I, I liked feeling good. I still love feeling great. I, I was really interested in the, in the power that, that food has on your body for good, you know, and I, I was, really as a as a cook and as a person interested in health i was 
always kind of experimenting and trying things. I remember trying like Atkins diet, but I was really kind of a kid of the 90s, you know, so there was a very high carb, low fat approach at that time. I, in college, took a bit of time off and was a baker for a year. And in doing that, I started to make buttermilk and cheese to make traditional breads. This is kind of a long-winded adventure here. But from there, I started making cheese. And after college, I took that passion. I went to Europe and I started working as a cheesemaker, first in Wales and then later in Italy. From there, I got a job in Sicily with a group of cheesemakers, helping them effectively market and export their products. And so I moved to Italy full-time for that work when I was, I guess, 21 or 22, just right out of college. And I got a visa and it was a great job, but I really got to be kind of in touch with, with the land. And I was in a very rural, remote area of Sicily. The neatest thing that happened to me in that time in my life, pretty much from like 21 to 23, is that I really had a physical health revolution. All sorts of little things in my life, like just like split ends and dry skin and the occasional UTI and like even cavities, like stuff that had just been part of my life disappeared. I lost weight. I felt really focused and clear. It was a radically different diet than I had lived in the US. My life in Europe, I was living in really rural areas, initially on dairies and then in a very rural farming community. I was eating like two pounds of cheese and two pounds of meat a day. You know, I went on the sort of very effectively a keto diet. And then the fruits and vegetables that you're eating were seasonal. They were smaller than what I was used to eating in the US. I ate them with a lot of olive oil. And it was just a totally different way of eating. And we also foraged a lot of food. In Sicily, every weekend, my friends and I, that was like the thing you do. It's like you go out and gather bitter nettles and fronds and wild asparagus and gather all these different things and, and cook from them. So it was an amazingly different style of life. And my whole physicality changed. And I remember at that time, just feeling like I never want to go back. Also just mood. I had a much more even mood. I was always happy and I hadn't always been happy before. <laughs> you know, so it was like it's something where I just said, hell, I never want to go back. So I don't consider myself somebody who's like passionate about cooking. I'm a, I'm a passionate cook. I cook to relax. It's very, you know, soothing for me. And I'm really skilled cook. I've been cooking for years. I've run a lot of restaurants, you know, but really the piece of it that motivates me is that connection to just peace and tranquility that comes from having really good food and the way that your body can respond to that and minor health friction can go away and you can experience just complacency and tranquility physically from from good clean food and for me particularly a high fat and, and high protein that is the coolest story ever you have like the coolest life story are you a cheese lover still yeah i'm now in definitely goat and sheep and then I will eat cow milk cheeses that are very aged and European. Not to sound like too much of a snob, but I don't, there, there's definitely something different. I, I believe in like the A2 milk and that heritage breeds of cows have a different digestibility to them. As I evolve as an eater, I'm eating a narrower and narrower bandwidth. But I think that's true with everything we get in America. You know, you and I were, were talking before the show started about sort of shared European roots. And we've all had the experience like when you're abroad that you're, wow, this is, you know, I, I sort of eat until I'm satiated, but I'm losing weight and I feel great, right? That thing that happens in Europe because it's sort of everything you have access to is cleaner than what we have here. So cheese in the US, I do eat, but with some caution about where exactly it's from. 
Yeah, I'm actually so glad you touched on that because I was going to ask you about that with the the milk and the A1 and the A2 and everything. And I hear that so often from my family, from just people in general. People will say they react to so many foods in the US, they have to be really strict with their diet, and then they go to Europe and they eat gluten, dairy, they eat everything and they feel fine. I've been so fascinated by all of that. I was wondering, I'm not, I'm already feel like I'm already on like tangent rabbit holes, but to that specifically, do you think it's just a matter of, for example, with the dairy, the difference in the A1 and A2 milk for listeners that aren't familiar, would you like to tell them a little bit about what that means specifically? No, definitely. It's a, that's a little out of my expertise. I, I know broadly that it has to do with a, a configuration of a, of a, it's a gene that that causes a different type of configuration of the key protein in milk. Is it protein or is it the fat? I forget which one. I think it's the protein. Yeah, I think it's the protein. Yeah, it comes from the so like everything. We had this massive efficiency applied to agriculture in the 1930s through 60s, right? So everything got bigger, better, faster, and you know that's like. In that we lost something. So, for example, if you eat a, an orange today, you're going to need to eat eight oranges to get the same amount from today's oranges of vitamin A that you would have gotten from one orange in 1940. So, the downside of all this efficiency is that, you know, and this, this extremely high productivity is that the quality is lower. And so, part of that's just things being pushed to produce a lot. And another thing is actually the genetics and design of the animals or, or plants that are producing it. So, in the case of the cows that we're talking about here, the modern dairy breed, which is an A1 type of gene, produces a protein that's somewhat more complex for your body to digest. The old-fashioned breeds of dairy, which are old-fashioned and in the rearview mirror because they produce less milk, period. Those animals produce this A2, which is much apparently you know much less problematic for your body. Now, in my kind of view of it too, anytime you have these big efficiency trade-offs, there's always externalities. So when you go, you know, I think a modern Frisian, the big A1 dairy cows, they can produce something bananas, like 15 gallons of milk a day. A baby cow needs one gallon, right? So what we've done is engineered an animal that produces 15 times the amount of milk. If you don't milk even if a Frisian cow has a calf on it, if you don't milk that cow with a machine every day, it will die, right? Because it's producing so much milk. So it'd be as if, you know, for those of us who have breastfed, imagine if you produce enough milk for 15 babies instead of one, like what that would do to your body, right? So if you think about that in terms of that machine of an animal, now that you go to the old fashioned breeds, they might produce two gallons of milk a day as opposed to one. So there's a huge difference between the total productivity. And anytime you have that like step function growth in efficiency in food production, there's always a cost, right? There's always something else that's got to give. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that there's some like protein degradation or, or inferior quality or greater inflammation potential for the product when you've increased the capacity of production so much out of the same animal. That is mind-blowing. About the 50 gallons versus one gallon. One five, one five, 15, not 50, but 15. Oh, 15, 15. Still mind-blowing. Still mind-blowing. And to that point, I think that really helps explain why it seems like we've solved the calorie problem. Like we're able to create, you know, with, with these systems, put out a lot of food, although we can circle back around to that with the apparent quote, food shortages that we seem to be experiencing right now with COVID, you know, we've seemingly solved the calorie problem where we have ample supply of food, but there's just not the nutrition there. So it's not surprising to me that 
we're still hungry, you know, because it's like we have to eat so much more. Yeah. And there's a really interesting concept that has been proven in animals, which is called the secondary satiety trigger. And the idea is that when we're eating, we're not just eating for satiety, right? We're not just eating to have like enough fat and enough calories or whatever it might be. There's a secondary satiety trigger is a trigger that's associated with micronutrient load. And the concept is that if you're having lunch of Doritos, you're going to be more inclined to overeat. I mean, A, because the sugar salt combination makes that food hyper palatable, you know, that the concept of hyper palatability where certain combinations of sugar and salt just cause you to overeat, right? The other piece that's making you overeat out of that bag of Doritos is that you're not getting any micronutrients. That's a nutritionally barren food. And if you don't get any of those micronutrients, your body doesn't say stop because it's not actually full because it's not really eating just for fuel, right? It's eating for medicine. Food's the original medicine. You know, we eat to heal, right? We fundamentally, animals eat to heal. You look at, you know, goats when there's a, an outbreak of, of a stomach issue in a, in a flock of goats, they will automatically go to bitter herbs and eat only bitter herbs, which are a natural antibacterial. Right. So animals have that. They naturally heal through food. In humans, we've we've unlearned that, although I think that pregnant women sometimes discover that, you know, like that craving for something like you all of a sudden want meat like crazy or want, you know, to eat dirt or something, right? There's these stories of women. So I think in pregnancy, there's some, some extreme examples. And I think people who are super in tune with their physicality still can can conjure that forward in their evolution. But, you know, in today's world, we're offered these nutritionally void foods. And so we don't hit these secondary satiety triggers. And so we're more inclined to overeat. So it seems like there's a few different things that we have to quote hit, like you were talking about to feel full, you know, the actual calories, the nutrition, like you just discussed. And then I was reading about how I guess historical hunter gatherers ate a certain amount of fiber per day. So there's this idea that maybe we also, you know, need a certain amount of fiber to fill full. So that's really problematic because, you know, these processed foods are devoid of nutrition and fiber. And then on the flip side, if we're eating conventional produce, like we were just discussing with the modern food system, they're going to be not as high in nutrients. So it seems like it's just difficult to, you know, provide the bodies the fuel that it needs. It's not shocking. Yeah. Sadly, I think that in the American diet, we do need to supplement, you know, just to be real about what's nutritionally available in our foods. So, you know, I would never have supplemented when I lived in Europe, but here I do because I I think there's just things that you're not getting and the micronutrients, but you also just need to be extremely cautious about what exactly you're eating. You know, so in the US, there's no such thing as something that you just eat. And the reason why is you have to be very proactive about your health. You have to be an advocate for your health as you navigate an American grocery store. And in doing that, my assumption when I navigate in the most American grocery store is that everything is contaminated. You were talking about people going to Europe and not having gluten allergy. I would argue that the issue there is glyphosate, which as we know, with genetically modified crops being outlawed in the EU, glyphosate isn't necessary there, right? Glyphosate is used, it's effectively the yin to the GM crops, yang. The, the GM crops are engineered to be resistant to glyphosate. So when you have a GM crop, genetically modified crop, you spray it very heavily with glyphosate. So every California wine, for example, is contaminated with glyphosate, even the organic ones. 
every organic grain-based product is contaminated with glyphosate. It's everywhere. It's been connected to autism. It's connected to inflammatory diseases like Crohn's and you know irritable bowel syndrome. It's been connected to a whole host of endocrine issues. Glyphosate works on killing plants because it effectively and killing pests because it effectively disrupts their endocrine system. So it's not a big surprise that it has a soft tissue, lymph, endocrine effect on humans as well. And it's pervasive. So I would say when people are like, why do I not, you know, get sick when I go to Europe? Well, A, they use lower gluten flours, right? Because they take, they do longer, slower rises and things like that on the breads that they use. And then they, they, the actual grains that they're using, they tend to prefer varieties that have a more natural, less enhanced level of gluten. But also you're not responding to the glyphosate in that baked product. Are you familiar with the work of Terry Cochran? She wrote a book called Wildatarian. No, I haven't heard of that. Tell me more. She's really interesting. I had her on the podcast as well, but she has done a lot of research into glyphosate. And one of the things she was talking about was how there's research showing that the body can confuse it for glycine. It completely like messes with that system in our body as, as well, on top of like the, the toxic effects and then the fact that it's water soluble and the microbiome. And I mean, I would just like, it's just shocking everything that it can do. No, you have to be super careful about it. And and everybody in the in the US initially was worried about like GMO free, right? Well, it's not really the GMO crops that get me concerned. You know, like the Frankenfood stuff. I'm actually not very concerned about eating that product, even though it's kind of nutritionally lower and some things I don't like about it. I'm concerned about what you can spray on those crops. Because unlike a, you know, if you plant conventional corn and you want to spray some pesticide around it to kill off the weeds, you have to go in there with a handheld device or with a specialized tractor and spray at the base of that plant, right? To kill it off, to get around it. But you can't touch the plant because the plant will die, right? With an herbicide or these heavy pesticides that are used. When you have a genetically modified, you can just take a crop duster and just spray the heck out of the whole thing. So that's the problem is that you have a much higher application of pesticides to GM crops because they're engineered to be resistant to it. I feel like this is a silly question, but is that the main goal of GMO? Is the goal to make it more resistant to pesticides? Yeah, it's to resistant to one pesticide, which is glyphosate. Okay. And listen, the resistance of glyphosate, it's naturally occurring in one plant, right? So like, like everything, it's like got a natural root. So it's not like that, that they totally engineer that. I know that came from one plant that was resistant to glyphosate. The glyphosate is a... It, the, the engineering of these crops is to engineer them to be resistant to glyphosate. Is it true that glyphosate came from leftover bomb material? I keep hearing that from multiple people. I don't know. I know that the whole you know, herbicide, pesticide, fertilizer industry rapidly took off after World War II, in part because some large munitions factories that were built for World War II were repurposed as fertilizer factories. So that may be related to that. And I, I, that is true, right? That there is basically, basically after the, the end of the, the Second World War, the question was, what do we do with these large munitions factories? And that was, fertilizer was one thing that was made for them. Well, bring it back to more of your forte, even though you know a lot about that anyways. So I think there's this whole, I feel like there's just this huge, what do I call it? Like we're so disconnected today from the farming system, like at least, I feel like I am. And I feel like unless you're a farmer or somehow work in that industry, we just don't, we just don't see it. And so when we contemplate sustainability and what is healthiest for the environment, what is healthiest for our health, I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding about what 
for example, the conventional farming system actually looks like compared to like a regenerative agriculture system like you do at Belcampo? Because I know there's like a huge movement to, you know, we'll just eradicate animals and we'll have a, you know, a vegetarian system and that'll be best for the planet. But I feel like unless we understand the whole system, it's hard to comprehend the implications of something like that. So I was wondering if you could kind of paint a picture of what the conventional farming system looks like compared to like the regenerative system. The easiest way to connect it for me is to look at it really as analogous to our own system of eating, right? Where we've actually created a system that creates obese animals very quickly, right? And so the way we do that is we put them in situations that are highly stressful. They're fed a maladaptive and inflammatory diet, and they're heavily dosed with antibiotics. And that's the, that's the sort of the short version, right? And now that's not just to make them obese. It's also because it's cheaper, right? If you look at an evolutionary diet for an animal like a cow, Cow is not a what's called a monogastric. A monogastric, you and I are both monogastrics. Pigs are monogastrics. Dogs are monogastrics. Monogastrics are carnivores or omnivores. We can eat a bunch of different things, but everything we eat is characterized by it being very nutritionally dense. Seeds, meat, fruit, a lot of calories per ounce. Cows are a ruminant. They're not a monogastric. They have five big stomachs, right? Why do they have all those stomachs? They have those stomachs because they can take this really nutritionally poor, very high fiber food, grass. If you or I ate grass, we'd be in the hospital within a day, right? I mean, it'll be really bad for our system because you can't process that much fiber, right? It'll actually break your gut. So if you're a cow though, you have this amazing system that's been designed to take this very, very poor quality food and turn it into nutrition. That's an incredible system. What happens when you dump a bunch of grain into that system? You have massive inflammation. So when we take a cow and we feed it corn, we're feeding it a food that is not adapted to eat. And its response is to gain weight rapidly and to become very inflamed and prone to sickness. Now you combine that in the space of, you know, the cow's life in a feedlot, they're also fed things like sawdust, leftover candy, like broken, rejected candy, other types of food waste, plastic shavings are used in cow feed as a fiber additive. So they're fed basically a bunch of garbage, right? Literally garbage. And they're dosed pretty heavily with antibiotics to suppress their natural immune reaction to being in that system. They're also not allowed to move very much. Now, in the start of their life, most cows in in the U.S. are born what's called a cow-calf operation, which will typically be outside in the grass. And they'll stay there until they're about six months. And then they'll move to a confinement operation first a stocking operation and then a feedlot. And those feedlots are designed to limit motion Cows can't walk around and they're typically have about 15 square feet per animal. And they're designed to just feed them really intense loads of calories while giving them antibiotics to suppress the associated disease that comes from being sick. So when you see a beautifully marbled steak, right? I When I see one of those steaks, like those big fat Wagyu's with all the veins of fat, I just think of obesity. I shudder when I see them. I know I'm all applauding it. I see that all the time on social media. Like, oh, I got this really, really cool people that I would think be more like aware of this. It's like, it'd be as if, you know, you show a picture of like a 700 pound 
eight-year-old and you're like, isn't this kid cute? And you're like, no, <laughs> that looks like somebody who's really sick, you know, in ways that it doesn't even know, you know, like that's what I see when I see a fat, fat Wagyu or super marbled prime steak. I see obesity. I see inflammatory response. I see sickness and death, you know, like that's what's tragic to me. We've come to kind of fetishize this really high fat meat. And that high fat meat is just an, an animal's body desperately trying to process a terrible food stuff in a terrible environment. And it's really effective, right? So when you have an animal in that environment, it can come to full maturity, full puberty, an entire lifespan. It'll be ready for market in 16 months. In a truly natural environment, that same unimproved pasture, so just out in the wild, that same cow would take 36 months. So almost three times as long to gain the same amount of weight. In an operation like Belcampo, where we have what's called improved pasture, so they're on grass, but it's really sweet, fresh grass to finish it, to like towards the end of its life, it'll take 24 to 26 months. So like we can take a natural feed, make it extra great, and we can take the finishing time from 36 months down to 24 to 26 months. But in this conventional system where they're feeding it, you know, this really nutritionally dense food, the antibiotics, it'll go down to 16 months to finish a cow. So it's a very efficient system. So when you look at why is grass-fed meat cost more, it's like, well, it takes at least, you know, almost almost twice as long to, to, to get that animal ready to market. And then also, it's like if you or I, you know, wanted to, let's say, gain 10 pounds, right? Would we do it by eating? How much would it cost and take for us to gain that 10 pounds by only eating spinach, right? Compared to how much would it cost or take for us to gain 10 pounds eating Fritos? Right. So it's a much more efficient, cheap way to get weight gain in a mammal, obviously, is to feed that kind of food. So the, the system is, I mean, the thing is that, you know, I, I feel some empathy for the conventional ag system because they were kind of doing what they were told. You know, it was like the American dream, lots of meat, right? Like, let's make this meat cheap. Meat is healthy for humans. Everybody, every American should deserve to have a barbecue on the weekend with a bunch of ribeyes and hot dogs and stuff. And we did that. You know, we made meat very, very cheap. And industry did what we asked them, right? We asked them for $2.99 a pound chicken or chicken breast. We asked them for, you know, this vast availability of meat. But what we didn't bargain for or look at is the bigger trade-offs that we would have to make for that cheap product. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. It's so sad. And then on top of that, like you were saying, you know, the farmers did what they were told and we created this system. And then on top of that, I think meat has been so unnecessarily demonized for its potential health. It's ironic to me because I think it's one of the most nutritious things that we can consume. And yet, in part, I mean, it makes sense given the eating meat in the context of a high process, high carb diet as well, or, you know, the nutritional issues with meat today. So on top of that, it's like these farmers are producing meat. And now there's this whole idea that meat's not even good for you. And so it's just... Well, I would argue that that it's totally true that that meat is bad for you. Mm -hmm. The conventional meat. Yeah. And it's really bad for the planet. It's definitely bad for, for everybody involved, bad for the animals, bad for the planet. So I would argue that that meat is, you know, all the advertising around that meat is totally accurate. It's not a clean product. It's not good for you. It's not good for the environment. And the problem that I see is that we have conflated the two types of production. And so when we're talking about anything, there's subtlety. You know, if I say, are vehicles bad for the planet? You said, yeah, vehicles are bad for the planet. I'd say, well, well, what about Hummers? Totally bad for the environment. Okay, well, what about bicycles? Oh, wait a second. That's a vehicle, but it's not. Okay. You have a minute where you have to say, you can't, you can't make a category assumption about something as broad as what we're talking about. So it's true. Conventional beef is terrible for your health, terrible for animals, and terrible for the planet. But beef is not. Beef is a fundamental part of human evolution, not just with regards to how we, you know, feed ourselves, but it's also been massively important to how we maintain and improve landscapes, right? All ruminants have been. So a properly managed grazing ecosystem has been like a cornerstone of, of domesticating landscapes, right? Because, you know, what we've shown on our farm, 
we started measuring carbon in the soil in 2013 with the Soil Carbon Institute, which is a third party nonprofit here in California. We measured it again in 2019, six years later, and we had increased soil carbon density in all of the samples that we used. So we have actually, through raising beef at scale, you know, 3,000 cows in our operation, through raising beef, we have increased the carbon in our soil. We have sequestered actively carbon in our soil. That is so fantastic. And I'm glad you brought it up because I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into that because I think I think a lot of people have these general ideas about carbon in the soil, carbon methane emissions, greenhouse gases, all of this stuff. And there seems to be this you know, idea that, oh, cows produce methane and increase greenhouse gases. And so just, you know, get rid of that and we'll be fine. One of the really interesting things was how, especially now with, with COVID and well, now people are driving more, but do you know like the stats about the changes in methane emission when we stopped driving because of quarantine? No, tell me. I actually heard it on Rob Wolf's podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to the actual numbers, but it was like basically the amount of the methane concentration went down so dramatically from basically the stop in transportation that people like to demonize cows as the main problem for greenhouse gases when that's probably not, not the main thing to be focusing on. And on top of that, so yeah, what is that process of how does it affect the carbon levels in the soil and how can it be like a net carbon negative sink? Yeah. So let's talk about the two things separately because they're different phenomena. So carbon and methane. So carbon is sequestered by plants. Plants take carbon out of the environment through their leaves and they put it into the soil through their roots. That cycle, it's a cycle and it happens on a bunch of different kind of levels in the, in the environment. In the case of Perennial pastures. So, in the case of our operation, it's the green grasses that grow naturally, that reseed naturally, where our animals walk and feed. Those have root systems that are at times as long as 30 feet deep. And they will go and actually, I mean, what you'll what you'll see is that the sequestration happens far beneath the soil. So these plants that we have are just natural grass plants. As animals walk around, they actually contribute to the health of the plant. How do they do that? Well, think about it when you have a plant in your yard and you trim it, right? And it will grow back more robust. That's the same thing. You're basically trimming the plant. You're creating vigor in it. And then while that's happening, the animal's hooves are going to be slightly aerating the earth. So they're going to be slightly digging up in the same way that a small amount of like tilling or opening up to let water and things penetrate your garden will have a good effect. The other thing that's happening is that the animal is dropping manure, which is high in nitrogen and also contains seeds from other plants. And so it's basically a mix of like trimming the plants, fertilizing them and aerating them. In a conventional system, you're not feeding the animals off that natural grass. You're cutting some crops like corn and bringing it to them. And you're, you're feeding them seeds but you're also feeding them the product of a tilled agriculture. So if I was to go into our farm and till up the pasture, we would release a massive amount of carbon. And the lack of tillage on our operation is very crucial to retaining the carbon sequestering function of the pasture. So by not interrupting the roots, by cutting them with basically blades, you're allowing the, the, the soil to, to regenerate and to sequester the carbon. When you have agriculture where you're tilling every year 
And you're also spraying it with chemicals like glyphosate, among others, that break up the, the root system because they hurt the microbiome of the soil. You're effectively ruining the soil's capability to increase organic matter and to sequester carbon. Now I'm just thinking back to when I was growing up and, you know, having like the garden in the backyard and we would put out the manure and everything. I, m- I remember the moment I, my dad explained what manure actually was, but it's just so incredible that, you know, it's like almost the natural system of the world with farming. It can restore itself if we just let it be the natural system. Exactly. And that's also with methane. So it's kind of a related thing. I, I think about it with methane. Imagine if you have, you know, a bird flies over your yard and and goes and drops manure, right? And you're you see that fall in your yard. You're boy like, you know, I actually buy bird manure in for my guano, right? For my yard and sprinkle it on my plants. And you see one drop of bird guano, you're like, great, awesome fertilizer, right? Imagine if you have all of a sudden you have a bucket, right? That's two feet deep and 10 feet wide, and it's full of bird manure. You're not, oh, awesome, right? What are you thinking then? You're like, oh, it's disgusting. It smells really bad. There's stuff growing in it, right? It's It smells like nitrogen. It's very intense. And that's the same issue with methane. So when you have a small amount of guano or manure dropped into the earth where it can integrate its nitrogen quickly, you're fine. That's good. That's the natural cycle. That's how pastures regenerate. I mean, think about it. Plants fundamentally have seeds so that we will eat them and pass them and distribute them. That's the function that we play in a plant's life, right? That's why fruit is sweet because they want birds and us to eat it and pass it through our digestive tract and drop it into the ground wrapped in manure, which is an excellent fertilizer, right? That's a very smart plant that does that. So these plants have been designed to encourage us to, you know, to, to eat their products and to drop them into the soil. That's the ultimate in the natural process. Now you have to, you know, you have to actually break that process and rebuild it in a way that's not functional, that's that's damaging to make these natural positive systems into negatives. With concentration, like if you look, I remember, do you, do you remember seeing during the the big floods that we had? What was it with the hurricane last year? And there was those terrible overhead views of the pork farms. Did you see that? Where there's these like vast lagoons of red that were just spilling out into the waterways of red. Yeah, because the manure, they put lagoons of manure in, you know, behind these confinement farms. And those are just like acres upon acres of just straight manure. That stuff is so toxic. When that leaks into the environment, it actually kills all the fishes. It kills all the waterways. It kills the plants. Because when you have a high density, it's the same thing too. If I dropped a two foot, you know, wide and two foot thick chunk of bird manure on my lawn, that piece of grass underneath it would die right? It's a different, it's the density of nutrition. You know, it's a density of nutrition. It's like a little, a little bit's great. And when there's a bunch of it in aggregate, it's toxic, right? Like many powerful natural substances. I was going to say exactly. It kind of reminds me of comparing healing with therapeutic doses of food and supplements compared to like pharmaceuticals where you take a concentrated, you know, something that probably was initially based on like a plant mechanism and then concentrated and take this drug that I think oftentimes becomes more toxic than the the intention of it. So when you have a break in our, our, our natural system and how animals evolved in the environment, it's an evolutionary process. It's been evolved for an optimal outcome for the plants, for the animals, for the earth, right? That's the great story that tells this truth is the story of the, you know, of the prairies, the actual decimation of the American prairies had to do with putting up fences, right? The dust bowl was a result of 20 years of fences being up. When the fences went up, the ruminants and killing off the buffalo herds, right? When the fences went up, 
the ruminants went away, right? There were no more buffalo. The buffalo were then killed off. And for a couple years, they farmed the Dust Bowl areas. They farmed the Great Prairies. And it was like some of the most record wheat harvests in history. Then it immediately cratered, right? And there was no fertility left because it was a weak ecosystem. It's not a very thick topsoil in that area. And the Dust Bowl happened because there hadn't been ruminants there for a number of years. There's actually a great you know, non-scientific, but historical event that verifies the importance of ruminants in maintaining and keeping vibrancy and adding, you know, soil health and soil density and organic matter to the earth in, in our own country, where we actually killed the most productive natural ecosystem or one of the most productive natural ecosystems of the, of the great prairies of the U.S. We killed them by removing the buffalo. And we thought, great, these are abundant and beautiful and vibrant and green. We'll farm these. And we farmed them for a year or two, and then they no longer were productive. And, they, and that's when the Dust Bowl happened. So there's a whole historical narrative about that. I mean, the role of ruminants in maintaining ecosystem is documented time and time again. And a great way to ensure a, a collapse in a, you know, a naturally ruminant rich environment is to remove the animals. So that's, a, I feel like this idea that, that we would be better off with, you know, no domestic animals or no ruminants and, and that cycle, it's actually, it doesn't align with what's happened in the past. You know, maybe there's some hypothetical future where you could have machines wandering around that punch small holes and drop nitrogen pellets. I mean, it seems very complicated. Like we have an animal that's perfectly designed to do this, let it do it. What we've done is we've taken a system that worked, but was not very hyper-efficient, right? And we've made it hyper-efficient. And in doing that, we created, you know, all the typical damage of hyper-efficiency. It also reminds me of something like, there's all these ideas of like lab growing meat and things like that. And it's like, we're trying to recreate this whole natural system. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of goals in mind with doing that, but we could just return to the natural system. <laughs> Now let's talk about why people are afraid of doing that. And that has to do with the fact that the meat would cost a lot more, right? I mean, the, the problem is we could return to that system, but we would probably, you know, the, the meat price point in that system would be high enough that we wouldn't all be eating ribeyes and, and hamburgers. We'd be eating cheeks and tongues, <laughs> right? And bone broth, you know? So there's a, there's a bunch of implicit choices in the current system, which is that it also allows us to eat primarily really, really easy lean cuts and to kind of ditch the rest of it, right? So there's, there's a lot of externalities for us as consumers. You know, in America, we have become a country of people who know how to cook a couple things, you know, we know how to cook sausages. We know how to throw a steak on the grill. We know how to make a hamburger, but we don't know how to braise. We don't know how to make broth. We don't know how to cook an oxtail or a shin or a cheek, right? So there's a lot of other kind of choices that would have to happen from a consumer basis. You know, I do think it's like, I reiterate, we didn't, this isn't a system that was shoved down our throats by industry. This is a system that we made as consumers in America in choice after choice in what we wanted. And now we're left with the end of that set of choices. And I think a lot of us are like, wait a second, let's take a step back. You know, let's reevaluate what exactly did we sign up for here? And that's a process. It's like a cultural conversation right now. But I don't want to, you know, it's not just about price. You know, the, the other side of price is that when you have cheap meat, you can afford to eat the, the nicest cuts and only the nicest cuts, you know? So to that point, I keep bringing it up, but like with the whole COVID thing started, it seemed like there was this meat shortage, for example, you know, like the grocery stores couldn't stay in stock. Like it was a lot of fear surrounding that. And then at the same time, I was reading that there actually wasn't a 
shortage of meat, that it was more a, I guess, a, I don't know. I was wondering if you talk about that because I was reading at the same time that it seems like there's like a lack of meat or a shortage. At the same time, I was reading that they're actually wasting a lot of animals at these conventional farms. Like, don't, don't they do, I don't know if it's like mass killings or don't they have to just get rid of a lot of? Yeah, that's a sad story. They're doing like abortions of pigs and cows now too. Destroying eggs. Yeah, so awful. What's going on exactly? Okay, so what happened is the piece that broke is that the current supply chain is extremely complex and efficient. So any types of products that are going to be in a grocery store, they're going to have like a eight-month planning and production cycle. So an operation like our company, Belcampo, when COVID hits, I'm selling less meat in the restaurants and I'm selling a lot more ground beef in one pound packages. No problem. We have a slaughterhouse. We just buy more little plastic bags and make more one pounders out of that meat that we are going to sell to restaurants as a, you know, a shoulder or something, right? So that's a very easy thing. It took us like three days, right? If you look at big industry, you have, you know, so many different people involved in that chain that have to have a whole standard, you know, procedure for communication and timing. So all of a sudden the restaurants stopped buying. So millions and millions of pounds of meat all of a sudden did not have a buyer. Okay, great. Grocery stores. There's lines at the door. Bacon shortage. People are, you know, elbowing each other about eggs. But that business that's making the pork loins or whatever for barbecue restaurants, they can't get that packaged as a pork chop fast enough. So they can't pivot around the supply chain to make it funnel into a new channel. Does that make sense? It does. So the actual shortage that we experienced at the grocery store. It was a shortage of retail packaged products. It wasn't a shortage of what, to, of what goes in the package. It was a shortage of the processing to the small retail package. Okay. Because people were basically panic buying and depleting that. And then even though there was lots of meat still, there was a shortage of a system to get it. Yeah. Let's just say like, you know, pork bellies and bacon was a huge shortage, remember? Right. So bacon, everybody's buying bacon, but then there's millions of pounds of pork belly out there, but then somebody has to salt it and smoke it and slice it and put it in a one pound package or a six ounce package or whatever it is. That whole supply chain that does that stuff, that packages it, that can't move very quickly. So there's no absolute shortage of product. There is actually an excess of product because the restaurant channel didn't consume anything for three months, right? What there is, is a, is a shortage of the capacity to produce other types of products from those base materials. Okay, gotcha. While we're talking about this, because I still have some more questions about the future of regenerative agriculture, but just specifically about this for people who are buying meat, storing meat, literal practical question, storing meat in your freezer, for example, how long does it last? I, I mean, I've read like technically it lasts indefinitely. You just want to be careful. I mean, from a safety perspective, it lasts indefinitely. Freezers are dry places. So what's called a freezer burn is just an actual slow drying of the exterior crust of meat. Why don't you ever get freezer burn on bacon? Well, there's very little moisture in it, right? So high fat products are never going to suffer from freezer burn. But any lower fat products like a steak or ground beef, if it's in a bag that does not seal properly, it's going to get a slow, slow drying of the exterior crust of that product, which will then be not be redeemable by cooking. So it'll always be hard when you cook it. So that's the key thing is like, let's just make sure it's packaged appropriately, which means a very tight bag, no water in it in the bag, ideally, or just a little bit, but not like a cup, you know, 
and that there's no pockets of air where water crystals can accumulate. Okay. And then also to that point, because I was telling you before we started recording, I received a wonderful package from Belcampo. Really excited for listeners. The thing that made me most excited was it had a pastured organic Cornish chicken that just looks fantastic. But for listeners who are ordering meat from places like Belcampo online, so is that a pretty safe system as far as the shipping and the ice while it's shipped and then receiving it? Absolutely. I mean, we do everything with two-day error and we have a shipping system. We actually spent about six months developing it. That's all ecological materials, but that will hold product, I think, up to four days chilled. Even if it's outside in like 95 degree weather, it'll hold. So you're fine with the product. I mean, obviously, if for some reason you get product and the inside is warm, I wouldn't eat that. But broadly, that's never going to happen with the Bocampo order. It's always shipped with a really good amount of insulation. And also my kind of rule of thumb is that you can usually refreeze if, if you have a package of meat that shows up that's, you know, like maybe the bacon's a little bit bendy or the steak's a little bendy. If refreezing it doesn't have a qualitative impact. I wouldn't want to be fully thawing and refreezing it two or three times. You know, then you're going to start to have some real degradation, not in safety, but in the, the texture. Because what happens when meat freezes is that the water in the meat expands, right, and gets angular, right? The ice crystals form. Those ice crystals have jagged edges. And those jagged edges actually rip the protein of the meat. And that ripping will make the meat mushy. So that's particularly, this is kind of a, a, a thing, you're talking about the chicken. You know, you, you've had the experience of mealy chicken, right? What causes rubbery chicken? I don't know, maybe there's not one cause, but. There is, there is. There's two major causes. One is that, so I gave you the stories about beef, right? 16 months to 26 months, roughly. Chicken. Okay, on our farm at Belcampo, our chickens take about 10 weeks to fatten, right? To come to weight. In a Tyson farm, it's two and a half weeks. So whereas a Belcampo beef is about like, you know, 80% longer lifespan, a Belcampo chicken is five times the lifespan of a conventional chicken. That's scary, right? That's terrifying. I don't want to eat something that's grown in one fifth of the natural time. You know, and it's not like we're starving our chickens. We're feeding them grain. They've got buckets of grain and, and food around them all day long, right? So that's nuts. Why, why is that happening so fast? And that's a combination of antibiotics and stress, you know, actual really, really dense feeding operations. It's a brutal, brutal, awesome, awful system. So the way that chickens are raised is the most disgusting of all the conventional animals. And I also think there's a totally energetic connection, like, Think about how many women in the U.S. suffer from like anxiety and how much chicken women eat in America. You know, I feel like we're eating these like highly anxious, strung out birds that you know they cut their beaks off because they're under so much pressure that they'll peck each other to death. Right? That's why they de-beak them, and that's horrifying. You know, like you're under so much stress that they'll literally pull the feathers out of the other birds until they kill them because they're just too tightly packed. Right? They're responding in the only way they know how. So you've got real, real brutality. I would say the biggest change you can make to your health as a, as a woman in the U.S. for me is like, find a damn good chicken and eat that chicken. Don't eat rubbery chicken breasts. Now, why is it actually, why is it so off-putting? The actual consistency of chicken, I think, is, is really unappealing in the conventional industry chicken. And the reasons why is fast-growing meat tends to be more rubbery. I mean, kind of makes sense, right? Like you, if you build a house fast, right? It's sort of like, you're, you're building these protein structures really quickly. There's actually 
In an extreme case, there's something called woody breast, which are like these kind of tough, big fibers that when customers find them, they think there's a piece of wood in the meat, right? It looks like a, like a splinter. And it's actually something naturally, but it's protein that's growing so fast, it almost like calcifies while it's growing, right? Kind of horrifying. So that to me, you know, anytime there's an extreme version, there's probably more subtle versions. So I assume there's some kind of like just propensity towards these like dry, rough, big, jaggedy fibers of meat in this really fast growing product. So that's part of it. Then the other part of it is chicken is a small animal. When you kill it, there's a lot of contamination potential. If I kill a beef, all of its guts and its insides and all of its manure are in really thick bags of intestines, right? So when I kill a beef and I hang it up, all those intestines are in the floor within like five minutes, right? You, you move all of that out. And then the animal itself and beef is covered in skin. You know, it's got this thick hide with fur on it. So there's no way that the inside of those guts are getting onto that meat very easily. It happens, but it's a lot harder. In chickens, you have small, fragile intestines. You have the, the animals, you know, it, there's a big potential for contamination between all the feathers, right? And the, the size of the animal and the delicacy of the animal. So in chickens, you can Google this, but there's a horrifying statistic that I think more than half of chickens sold in the U.S. have fecal matter on them. Now, the way that we manage that in the U.S. is we mandate a sanitation after killing, right? Which kind of makes sense. I get why they did it, but I also would just rather that we killed in a way that was clean and slow. <laughs> like radical idea. How about we like not, you know, not make it disgusting to begin with instead of making it disgusting and then dipping it in bleach. But what we do is we mandate typically either, you know, different types of a treatment. So most of the chicken in America, 99% after slaughter, it's dipped into ice water with bleach and lactic acid in it. Now that increases the weight of the chicken by 15%. Have you ever had the experience of cooking chicken breast and this like white liquid comes out, like a little bit of residue of white? Probably. I've been having like really good chicken recently. If you have really good chicken, you won't have this, but many, some of your listeners might resonate with it. It's like you cook chicken breast and you'll see a little bit of water come out of it. And that's typically the soaking liquid. It's a bleach solution. So when the problem is that then that chicken, if you freeze that chicken, it's been pumped up with this water and that extra water increases the propensity for the meat to get mushy as it's frozen and thawed. Because the more water in the meat, the more likely that the formation of ice will break the protein structure and the mushier the product will be. So like whenever you see on like a chicken, like at the store and it says retained water, is that what it's referring to? Sometimes you look at the chicken and it'll say may contain up to this percent. Yeah, that's what it is. It's water and, and chlorine and lactic acid. So yeah, there's actually been, been a, a lawsuit by the Physicians Association of the U.S. against the chicken industry because against the USDA for how contaminated the chicken is in America. What you want to do is just look for air chilled. That's a good first step. And air chilling takes longer and it doesn't add any, you know, chickens are sold by weight. So it's in the industry's benefit to use, to advocate for the water chilling because it actually bumps up the weight. Okay. Yeah. I've been eating air chills specifically for, for quite a while now. To that point, I was mentioning earlier, Terry Cochran's work, her main thing that she focuses on that involves all of this is how conventional raising practices create amyloid proteins in the animals. 
those truncated proteins, when we take them in like exogenously through conventional chicken, conventional beef, our body just can't break them down. And so it's contributing to all this inflammation. It's like we literally can't digest it. Really? That's really fascinating. I've never heard of that. I'm going to look that up. That just sounds like a podcast I should listen to. I'll send you the link to the interview I did with her because we dived in deep. Yeah, it was, it was just really, really fascinating. Oh, here's a really random question for you. You're mentioning how, I love what you said about how women, the stress of these animals might be, you know, contributing to our stress as well. And there is this idea of, you know, our stress hormones stored in the animals and do we eat that? And I was wondering, so toxins and stress hormones and all of that is stored in the animal's fat. Do you think there would be a different implication if, for example, you only ate female cows versus male cows? This is like a hypothetical question. I really don't know. I've never, you know, for myself, having eaten a lot of wild animals and, you know, steers and bulls and females, I I have never noticed a very different like somatic effect for myself. So I I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. It's just something I've been pondering. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there are implications there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely some glandular differences, you know, if you're going to eat prostate or, you know, like there's things you can eat that have tons of testosterone and more male hormones in them, you know, obviously. But if you're interested in like supplements around that, that's probably easier to come by than like actually eating the meat. There's indicators, you know, boar meat and, and bull meat is very, very you know, it tastes very rangy and musky, you know, which suggests like when anything tastes different, there's going to be something different nutritionally in it. You know, like that's not, that's not a surprise. I would be surprised though, you know, if I would hypothesize like what you're asking me to do about the gender differences, keep in mind that conventional animals and free range animals now are still killed far younger than their natural life cycle. So those types of subtle sex differences tend to be like very far post pubescent. And we eat most, most livestock we eat right after puberty. It's like we eat the young adults, right? So we, we tend to, and that's, that's sadly a result in the case of beef of, you know, in the U S we, we have a lot of bad cow disease in the American beef herd. We manage it by mandating that you really can only eat animals that are under three months old. Okay, so we don't have a lot of older animals in commerce. I think the sex differences in flavor that I have personally can speak to from my own experience are really only showing up in older animals. Okay, gotcha. Can I ask you an extremely naive question? (laughs) I just realized I haven't thought about this and I don't know the answer and it's a very naive question. So cows raised for dairy versus cows for beef and steaks, is there overlap there? Like do dairy cows, are they eventually slaughtered for steaks or is that completely separate? That's a great question. Yeah. So in today's agriculture, we have very distinct breeds. We have milk breeds and we have beef breeds. In the past, up until the start of this century, we had what were called dual purpose breeds. So Gloucester cattle, being example, or Belted Galloway is our example of a dual purpose. So they have pretty good tasting meat, but they also produce a decent amount of milk. In the past, you actually even had tri-purpose breeds because beef used to play a big role in agriculture because they were used to, uh, to draw plows, right, to actually as oxen. So in the past, you'd have dual-purpose breeds that might be labor and beef, right? So there's this, the cows had three functions. They were the tractor, 
they were meat and they were milk. And so breeds were selected for usually doing well at two out of those three things back when, you know, people maximum had like six or 10 cows. They would have a mix of different, different types of animals for different functions. In the modern world, we've have very, very hyper specialization. So nobody farms commercially a dual purpose breed anymore. It would be commercial suicide. You just couldn't make money because even the best dual purpose milk breed is, produces a fraction of what a proper milk breed would produce. This is fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, they're they're totally different. And you know, our animals, of course, like our beef produce milk, um, but they just produce it for their babies, right? So it, it's you know, you'll they're like beef cattle. You'll notice when they have a full udder, udder but it's not like a milk cow where you see these ginormous udders like they're just they're very very different physiology in the you know actual handling of a dairy animal at end of life in america it goes into the meat channel right but it's the cheapest meat and the reason why is you know the average dairy cattle in the u.s has a productive life i think of like 18 months to three years in europe it's 15 years which is sad the reason why is that we have extremely aggressive milk production schedules. We we do year-round lactation in the US. So we cause, you know, the animals to lactate constantly and never stop. Whereas in the in Europe, they're mostly seasonal lactation. So they'll let them produce milk for six months and then take a break and then produce it. You know, so they cycle them. And so the European steak world, there's a type of there's a type of delicacy of a of a steak from a dairy cow that's like over 15 years old. It's a really special food. It's like very, it is pretty fatty. It's got very big, tender nestle fibers. And it's like, it tastes of mature beef. It's really delicious. Does it have a name? It's, it's just in Spain and in France. They're really, I don't know what they'd be calling, but they call them. But it's just like, it's like when, when you have a classic, like big, beautiful steak, it's from one of, it's from an older dairy animal. In, the, in Italy, it's typically from an older labor animal, from a Piedmontese or a Brema cow. So you basically have these big steaks from animals. Because I mean, back in the day, you would take your tractor and use it for 10 years and then you'd eat it, right? Or you take your milk cow for 10 years and then you'd eat it at the end of its lifetime. There is a taste for that type of meat. So it's a very special, it's a large steak. It's really tender. In the US, people have tried to do that same type of product because it's so special and people go to Europe, freak out about it. But the problem is we push our dairy cattle so hard here that their meat is not very delicious. Because basically if you're, if you're lactating and you're a cow, you're always pushing all of your fat out into your milk, right? And so dairy cows are actually quite lean. You know, you think about it in, in all of our evolution, I, you know, this is like the same thing, like how breastfeeding women will lose teeth, right? And lose your hair and, you know, have dry skin and like all these things happen when you're breastfeeding. Cause I mean, your baby is your priority. Your body makes your baby the priority. So all your best nutrients go out of your body into your milk. The same thing's true for cows. So they, they end up having fairly impoverished meat by the end of their life in the American system. So really the dairy cattle industry in the U.S., all the meat basically goes into like the school lunch program and it goes into the very cheapest kind of channels for meat. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. 
So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health 
help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me Oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner 
scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands. And it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. I just learned so much. That is so interesting. So another question going back to the whole regenerative agriculture and you were talking about the barriers to this system being, you know, the price point would go up 
pretty high. An ideal dream situation, if we could just flip the switch and the U.S. was now all practicing regenerative organic agriculture with a system like at Belcampo, I know that's not going to happen. But if that was possible, would the price point still be high if it was that entire system? Or is it only going to be high as long as it's not the prevailing system? No, that's a great question. And, and so here, I'd, I'd put phrase a little differently where I'd say, like, what, what benefits will we have with scale? Right. And the answer is there will be some efficiencies with scale. Right. This will get cheaper. But there's one thing that scale will not solve, which is that the confinement system, the primary foods that are used in the confinement system are subsidized crops. So whereas we pay for every blade of grass that we grow and manage and farm, you know, not actively, but like maintaining our pastures at Belcampo, every dollar that goes out, we pay for somebody feeding corn to their beef, they pay like 30% of the actual cost of raising it because it's a subsidized crop. Gotcha. So the change has to happen from like a, almost like a legal subsidy. It's the same reason why, you know, cereal is too cheap and all this junk food that we eat in America is too cheap. It's like when you have as a primary ingredient, it's the same reason why corn syrup, I mean, why should corn syrup be cheaper than sugar? You know, corn, corn is like complicated. It's a very chemical, expensive, complex product to extract syrup from corn, but it's cheaper than sugar. And it has been since it started. And that's because of the subsidies, right? So I can't say that we'd ever get close to the subsidized price of beef. It's just not possible, right? I mean, you think about it. It's like, it's crazy to me that it's way more expensive to take a cow, let it out on a patch of grass, move it around a couple of times during its lifetime, and then slaughter it. The other system is take a cow, put it in cement. You have to wash down the cement pretty frequently. You have to get a guy to walk in with a bag of corn every day, dump it in a trough. That corn has to be shipped from somewhere. And that place it's shipped from, it was grown, sprayed with chemicals, harvested, dried, packaged. Like That should cost way more, right? Yeah. That should cost way more. I mean, processing, transport, human labor, complexity, like that sounds like the more expensive thing, but not in America, you know? And that's like where you see this like, oh, Australia and all their grasslands and Argentina and grass-fed beef, you know, you, you, there's some countries where grass-fed beef is the norm. And I, I kind of laugh when people are like, it's somehow that they're more virtuous. It's like, no, it's not that they decided to do the right thing. It's that they don't have subsidies. And so it is more expensive to feed corn to cows in absolute than it is to feed grass. But as long as we're subsidizing corn, we're not going to ever win, right? Like there's no way we can ever compete because their product is effectively close to free, their, their biggest input, and ours is not. Do you foresee if in the future, if there's more and more of this regenerative agriculture and consumers, you know, speak with their dollar and start purchasing from these type of farms, do you think there could be a shift in the future where different things are subsidized and we switch over? I don't know. I wonder about that. Like, I'm not the most optimistic about some of these things, you know, because it's the subsidy system is very entrenched. I think every presidential candidate talks about dismantling it at some point, And then it never happens because it's obviously like Iowa and everywhere, right? They want it to stay. But, you know, I think economic factors will break it. You know, I think ironically, the thing that's close to breaking the subsidy system is the genetically modified crops because genetically modified crops, the seeds are actually more expensive and the inputs are more expensive. So you have a lot of farmers who have been convinced to grow GM corn 
And then between the amount that they owe Monsanto for the patented seeds and then the chemicals they buy from Monsanto to manage that corn, they don't make money anymore. You know, so I think economics might break things, right? More than we can. But to me, I, 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 I feel like if I'm looking at ways to increase my health, my vibrancy, my immunity right now in America, and I'm looking at my diet, I would start with the, with the item that I share 99% of my DNA with. The thing I, if I was like, okay, what am I going to spend up on? I have my, you know, my, all my different things I eat in the course of a day. What am I going to get the nice version of or the healthy version of? I think it's a logical choice to say, I'm, I think I'll start with the thing I share the most DNA with, which is an animal, right? That I'm eating and, and find the one that's raised in a way, I mean, animal wellness should support human wellness. If I'm looking to optimize my human wellness, I'm going to start with the animal wellness of the animals that feed me. So I, I think that's a, that to me is an intuitive kind of choice. Now, I hope that more people will, will make that connection and just say, yeah, I don't really want to choose to eat something from a system that's damaging earth and damaging animals' bodies. And how do you feel about, because I know now a lot of the, like the larger grocery stores, they'll have their version now of like organic and, you know, it seems like it's a conventional approach to potentially good change, but I, I know it's, it's hard to know with labels and what's actually going on. So do you know what I'm talking about? Like when you go to the Publix, Kroger, even Whole Foods, should we quote trust that <laughs> or do we need to be going, you know, direct to farms that we specifically know like Belcampo and direct farmers that, you know, local co-ops, things like that. Okay. So organics, third-party certified. When it says organic, it's organic. So there's no problem with people misleading you about organic. It's very regulated. The problem with organic is it doesn't tell the story. You know, organic is just a piece of the picture. You can have organic feedlot cows. You can have organic feedlot or organic confinement pigs in, in crates, right? They keep the pigs in tiny cages. You can have organic confinement chickens with thousands of chickens in single, you know, boxes in the dark and it's awful, right? So all those things can be certified organic. There's not a welfare component to organic, unfortunately. That just has to do with the timing of when organic was developed. Confinement agriculture was not as big as it is now. So organic's a little piece of it. It means that no nitrogen-based fertilizers and chemicals were used in, in the production of the whatever feeds were used on the animals. So I, that's something, it's a piece of things. I would say that what I'm looking for, if I'm a grocery store shopper, right, and I'm at a Kroger's or a Wegmans or wherever I might be, it, it, what I'm looking for depends by category. For beef, I want grass-fed and grass-finished. A lot of animals are grass-fed, but they're not grass-finished. The health changes radically when it's grass-finished. So that's what I would start with. If you can also get organic, great. If you can also get the name of a farm, great. For pork, I want to look for a certified humane, no farrowing crates. And I, I would also opt for an organic product there, or at least a GMO free in the feeds. If you can get the name of the farm, great. Lamb, same as beef. Chicken is a little different. Chicken, I would say, because that's the most consolidated industry. And it's also, frankly, the, the most kind of like egregiously bad industry. I mean, I think the five biggest chicken producers in the US were all recently indicted. Just like in the past week, there's a big, big, there's a lot of scandals in the chicken industry. It's not a high integrity industry. So with chicken, I would actually look for the name of a farm. I wouldn't look for Rocky or for Bell and Evans, that level. I would look for like a smaller farm that you can Google and find out and look for pictures of chickens that are actually outside and some documentation that the chickens are actually outside. You know, when you say free range on a chicken package, 
that means that the chicken has to actually just have access to a door to go outside. So in the case of a chicken house, that's like, you know, 90 feet long, that can be one 18 inch wide door on a length. And you're a tiny chicken, you know, how are you going to find that door, right? That's not free range. So with chickens, I want the word pastured. And I also look at price, you know, really good beef you can find at like, you know, 30% more than the really bad beef, honestly, 50% more. It's not that much more expensive. There's a pretty scaled supply chain. Not the best stuff, but there is some good stuff out there. Chicken, if it's a really good chicken, it's going to be like three times the price. It's a crazy how much more it costs to do it right, which is kind of an indicator of how bad the bad stuff is. But yeah, I would, I would look for the name of a farm, the word pastured, organic, free range. Okay. doesn't mean very much, but if pastured trumps free range, and then also look for a certification, certified humane animal welfare association approved. Those are some good certifications that have to do with the animal handling practices. I love that. I do like at Whole Foods, for example, where they have the step system. So you can see like the criteria that were used for everything. Do you guys supply to grocery stores like Whole Foods locally? We do. We're just really rolling that out right now. We've been in Air One Grocers, which has been an incredible partner for us. They're so awesome. Oh, I love Air One. Okay. Yeah, we do great there. We're starting in just a month in Met Market, which is up in Metropolitan Market in Seattle. So that's going to be a great account for us. We're also starting in Northern California with Nugget Markets. And we're doing small selections it's like ground beef and ground lamb, ground pork, sausages, chickens, right? So pretty lim- our bone broth, which is world famous. We don't have a very big geographic footprint yet for people looking for really the full range of steaks and everything, brisket and pork ribs and that kind of stuff. Our website is really the place to go. We've added a ton of products to that. And that's really m- most of our power users are, are buying from the website and then just dropping it into a chest freezer or something at home, you know, and and then using that as a supply. I'd love to be in more grocery stores. Grocery stores are hard for expensive products like mine because there's a lot of fingers in the pot. You know, there's a lot of distributors and, you know, fees and things associated with that, especially as many grocery stores are doing delivery. That's something to think about for you as a consumer and for your audience. It's like when you buy on Instacart, right? It's great. I buy on Instacart or Amazon Prime now or something. But like that's, you know, there's a chunk of that, 10% of that or something goes to that platform, right? So that's less money going to the retailer. And it's not to say like, oh, have a pity party for the retailer, but it means that they actually can't kind of bake into that margin more expensive providers, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's completely. You have like kind of people now with so much grocery moving to online fulfillment and just in time delivery kind of stuff. It's like the margins are just going smaller and smaller. And that means that less kind of like groovy local high cost products are going to make it in groceries, I think, because, you know, bless their hearts, but the grocers, they've got huge rent bills. They have very high costs for staff. They have to maintain a huge inventory, right? So they, they got to make it work too. And it, and it becomes harder, you know, a product like ours has a relatively small margin because, you know, you can only charge so much for a chicken or for your ground beef and our costs are higher. So that's, it's a, it's a problem right now, I think coming out of COVID is how many grocers are going to be able to stick with their cool like local procurement programs. This is so illuminating for why it's so important to speak with our dollar when we're making our purchases. It's just so evident to me. One last question. So people, normal, everyday, non-farming people like myself, if we have like a, a yard and stuff, how do you feel about like growing your own plants? Or I know people are like getting chickens now with COVID and quarantine. Can you actually practically from that create a lot of 
quote nutritious food or is it more just to get the experience and the beauty of it and connecting with nature? I'm just wondering about like the practicality implications of it. For actually vegetables or chickens? Both. (laughs) I would argue that you can grow enormously nutritionally dense food in your garden. And I would recommend, you know, getting heirloom varieties, you know, get some stuff from seed, get some horse manure, cow manure delivered to your house. You can grow amazing products and you can, you know, really, really get nutritional density there. You can get back to the way things used to be because in a small garden, you're not like having to generate this many pounds of green beans a day. It doesn't really matter, right? So you can actually do amazingly well for yourself nutritionally with a backyard garden. I also think that backyard gardens are a great place to have just a ton of herbs, which are super stimulating for your digestion, great for your overall health. You know, things like fresh mint for teas, as well as like, you know, fresh mint's amazing thrown in a in an Asian beef salad, right? So I, I would advocate for gardening all day long. It's a great way to get really high quality food. I, I agree that sometimes, you know, you read these stories where it's like, I spent, you know, $800 on my garden and I got four tomatoes, right? So obviously doing it, you have to have some scale where it makes sense, you know? And I, I would say if you have less than like 10 square feet, just do an herb garden, you know, just keep it simple, just something you can do. And I think it's terrific. I also think if you have kids, it's a great way to get appreciation for food. But it's you can you can grow super high nutrient density food. You can grow rare varieties that are hard to get elsewhere that have really unique characteristics. And then try growing things like some red green beans are delicious. Red lettuces, you know, the red plants have more nutrient density. You can grow things like tomatillos, at least for here in California, grow fantastic. And they're great for salsas and that kind of thing. So I think a garden, if you've got the time to do it, is epic and a great use of time. Backyard chickens are awesome for eggs, definitely. It's also a really nice way to handle compost and food waste, you know, in terms of full circle. I think it's something that a lot of us became aware of during COVID is that we didn't want to waste food. That's sort of a common sentiment. People were feeling like all of a sudden, like, I used to throw stuff away like this all the time, and now I'm afraid to, I don't want to, you know, that feeling. Chickens are, they're like a, you know, a living compost metabolizer, right? What about a pig? Can you have like a pig in your backyard? Yeah, you could. I mean, pigs are, pigs need space. I would not take on a pig if I had less than an acre. And the reason why is that pigs will root around. So they'll dig and they'll really tear things up. So if you keep a pig in a confined area, this is why pigs are kept on concrete in confinement operations. They'll dig and dig and dig and it'll just turn into a mud pile. So we move our pigs very frequently. Because if we leave them for too long in one place, they'll just make things into big dirt pits. So it's not going to be the most aesthetic. But yeah, I mean, if you have a big, an acre or two, get a pig. No problem. Get a couple pigs. And goats are also fabulous on that, on that front. But pigs are also natural omnivores, just like chickens. You know, the pigs at our farm have been known to hunt and kill rattlesnakes, for example. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're, they're, real, they're real predators. They'll get out there and get it done. So could be it could be helpful. Pigs are also, they are carnivores. They will nip at you. So I think from a, like, if you have kids or visitors or dogs, like pigs can be pretty nasty. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty, they can be aggressive. So I wouldn't, I mean, some of them are sweet and docile. There's a character to them, but I, I wouldn't, pers- I could handle backyard chickens. I have a big vegetable garden. I have enough animals in my business. I wouldn't want any in my house other than my dog, but I would never recommend a pig for any, anybody with less than like an acre plus, right? But it's really, really beautiful and amazingly efficient. Here's a fun story for you is that, you know, piggy banks, right? I never understood the metaphor of the piggy bank until an Italian farmer explained it to me. 
And he said, the piggy bank, it's you put a penny into it every day. And then after a couple of years, you crack it open and you have much more money than you thought. And that's, it's, it wasn't just that pigs are cute. So they made piggy banks look like pigs. The reason is that it's the same thing as a pig, right? And a pig, you know, scrape your leftover because pigs will eat leftover bones. They'll eat chicken broth. They'll eat pasta, they'll eat anything. So you scrape your, you know, back in the old olden days, you'd scrape your plates full of leftover watermelon rinds and whatever else you didn't eat and bean husks and that pig would eat them. And after a couple of years, you'd crack it open and it would be wealth, right? That's incredible. <laughs> I love that. That's going to stick with me. That's like one of the little fun facts that you learn. It's kind of like, wait, here's a mind blown moment. Speaking of chickens, do you know the whole thing about why did the chicken cross the road? I mean, I've heard the joke. Yeah. I <laughs> saw so I get really excited about this one. It's like actually a joke. So like, why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side. Yeah. The other side. So what happened to the chicken? I don't know. The other side of the road or the other side? The other side. Like the dark side? It died. Like, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side, to get hit by a car? Oh. The other side. Well, the reason I think it's such a mind-blown moment is everybody thinks it's like a throwaway, but it's actually a joke. Like, it's actually a pun. It's actually like one of the most brilliant jokes and nobody realizes. Yeah. Why the chicken cross the road? Because it would get killed and then go to the other side. To get to the other side. (laughs) Sorry, just like that was a mind-blown moment for me (laughs) when I first realized that. I was like, oh my goodness. I never thought about it that way. <laughs> I know this is kind of a grim discussion, but I appreciate your questions. This was amazing. Oh, yeah, this was absolutely amazing. The last question I ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's just because I realize more and more how important mindset is surrounding everything. What is something that you're grateful for? Oh, I mean, the privilege to change the world with what I do, you know, the ability to create change. That is so incredible. And I just want to say, I am so grateful for what you're doing. I mean, I was already feeling this, but after this conversation, I'm just like, everybody needs to hear this. Like everybody, we just need to be making these changes. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing and spreading this awareness. And it's just really, really incredible. So for listeners who are interested, who want to follow your work, you have a cookbook as well called Home Cooked, and then listeners can order from Belcampo. What are the links and all the resources for all of that? Campo.com and I can give you a code you can post with the story to, to let people have a discount. Um, and then you can follow us on Instagram at, at Belcampo Meat Co. And then me personally, I am at Anya Fernald. Awesome. So we'll put all of that in the show notes. So for listeners, <laughs> the code will be Avalon20, A-V-A-L-O-N-2-0, and that will get you 20% off. Thank you. I did not know we were going to do that, so that I'm really excited about that. Again, for listeners, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash bellcampo. That's B-E-L-C-A-M-P-O. I'll put links to everything there. Thank you again, Anya. This was so incredible. I'm so appreciative and I just, I'm really, well, I'm really excited to try this Bel Campo that showed up at my door today. So thank you for that as well. Enjoy. I hope you feel that, like the vibrancy in your body when you eat it too. Oh, I'm sure I will. I know that feeling, you know, when you have an actually nutritious, properly raised animal, there's just, you feel it like intuitively that it's like, this is nutritious. Like, so thank you so much. Terrific. Okay. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. 
For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.